Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We continue our study in Luke's Gospel. We'll be in chapter 13 this morning, beginning in verse 31. And you will find that on page 873 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. I do encourage you, as I try to on most Sundays, to have a copy of God's Word open. I know the verse will be on the screen in a moment, but we're actually going to be moving around in Luke's Gospel this morning. And I think it would be helpful for you to stay engaged if you're able to follow along with us as we consider God's Word this morning. So Luke 13, verse 11. While you're finding your way there, I'm excited uh, for what this church is going to do in November in this uh, thanks-serving initiative. In fact, why don't you all say that word with me together? Thanks-serving. Let's do that again. Thanks-serving. We want to be a church that simply does not stay within the walls of this building, but scatters into our community that we might bless our neighbors for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we want, as a church, to equip you with opportunities to do that. And so this November, as Josh said, we have three weeks of community outreach through this thanks-serving campaign. All right? And so I'm excited. We're going to hear more about it. But you need to be involved in this. You need to pray about, okay, how, it is, how is it that I can engage my neighbors and my community for the glory of Jesus? And so I'm excited to hear more and see how God will bless His kingdom through our efforts. So we find ourselves in Luke 11 and verse 31. Hear now the Word of God. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and saw Him and said to Him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem! Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How would I gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not? Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our Father, we're thankful this morning as we are every Sunday for Your Word and Your kindness to us by preserving it that we, this little church in Hamilton, Virginia, can set our hearts upon it that we might know our God better and His Son more clearly, that we might follow Him with greater passion and diligence, that our hearts might be warmed and encouraged by His commitment and love for you and for us. And so help us to find delight in your word. Open our hearts to receive it. And by receiving it, we might more fully receive you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the great late pastor Henry Ironside once told a story of a, of a well-known English pastor some time ago who one night when he was ready to retire uh, was interrupted with a knock upon his front door. 
He went downstairs and he found at the door, standing in the rain, a poor, wretched little girl dripping wet. She said to him, Are you the minister? He said, Yes, I am. Well, won't you come and get my mother in? She asked. The pastor responded, Why, I was just about to retire. And besides, it is hardly seemly for me to go out and get your mother in. If she is drunk, you can go get a policeman to get her in. Oh, you don't understand, the girl said. My mother is not out in the storm. She is not drunk. She is at home, and she's dying. She's afraid to die. She is afraid she's going to be lost forever, and she wants to go to heaven and doesn't know how. I told her I would go get her a minister to get her in. Well, the pastor asked where she lived, and she told him that she lived in a district of the city that was so vile that even in the daytime, respectable people did not go there without a policeman accompanying them. And so the pastor said to her, why, I cannot go there tonight. And he subconsciously thought to himself, it will be all my reputation is worth to be seen with a girl like this in that district in the middle of the night. No, I cannot go as the preacher of this great and important church. What would my people think if this should get into the papers? So he said to her, I I tell you what to do. Go get the man who is running the rescue mission. He will be glad to help you. He said he was felt ashamed as soon as he said it, but, but realized his reputation had to be maintained. She said to him, He may be a good man, but I don't know him. I told my mother I would get a real minister, and I want you to come and get her in. Come quickly. She's dying. And the pastor said I couldn't stand the challenge in those eyes. I felt so ashamed, and I said to her, Very well, I will come. So the pastor put on his great coat, and the little girl led him down through the city into the slums, into an old house, up a rickety stairway, and along a dark hallway into a little room. And there the poor woman lay. The girl said, I've gotten the preacher, in the, I got the, the preacher of the biggest church in the city. He will get you in. He didn't want to come, but he's come. You just do what he tells you to do. The woman looked up at him, said, Oh, sir, can you do anything for a poor sinner? All my life I have been a wicked woman, and I'm going to hell. But I don't want to go there. I want to go to heaven. Tell me what I can do to get in. It seems to me that in this portion of Luke's gospel, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. This is some of his most evangelistic teaching as he is encouraging and exhorting people to come in. We even saw last week in verse 24 that we are encouraged to enter through the narrow door. For the Lord says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He's saying eternity is at stake. You need to get through the door before it's shut and you are sent to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he's encouraging with this great urgent message that for people to come in through Christ into the kingdom of God before it is too late. As he says in verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. 
And Jesus is, is beckoning people to come in. And it's at that time when Jesus is teaching us how to come in, we read in verse 31, at that very hour some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. So at the very time when Jesus is, is welcoming people into the kingdom, the, these Pharisees come and they, they warn Jesus, you better beware. You better run and hide. Herod is after you. And yet for Jesus to run and hide would to get, get him off the mission in which he has come. You see, the narrow door by which, which we must enter must first be opened. And only Christ has the key. And it, he is on this mission to open this door unto salvation for us. And he begins to explain this to the Pharisees. And I trust to you and I, 2,000 years later, the mission in which he has been sent. We might call this passage the Messiah's mission. As we consider the, the various details of what he has come to do. And so I look forward to considering that with you this morning. I, I do want to um, give a special welcome to those this morning who perhaps do not identify themselves as followers of Christ. And we're glad that you are here this morning. Um, I want you to note in this passage um, the urgency in which Jesus repeatedly explains his mission. And I think so often we don't have much urgency about us, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. And I understand that. I lived a long time in that life. But I, I simply want you to know that, that though you might not be urgent, Jesus is. And that you might do well to consider why he's so urgent with these things. Well, let's consider the Messiah's mission. First of all, we see the mission's necessity. In verse 31, as we saw, at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, this is the first time we've heard of the political opposition to Jesus in Luke's gospel. We, of course, have already seen that the religious elite, the religious traditionalists, are uh, opposing Jesus with, with great veracity. But for the first time, we learn, okay, it's just not the religious folks that are against Jesus. It's now the political class that are against Jesus. Herod is after you. This is a reference to a man named Herod Antipas. He is the ruler in Galilee. Now, if you remember the chronology of Jesus' ministry, we know from John's gospel that he begins his ministry down in Judea or in southern Israel. And there he's ministering, and it's, it's once this very same Herod arrests John the Baptist that Jesus withdraws to the north in Galilee. And there he has this incredible ministry in Galilee, maybe for about two years, it's often called the Galilean springtime because masses of people are coming to him. We see most of his miracles there. And eventually he gets to the point where he has to leave Galilee and he begins to travel back down south towards Jerusalem. And we're kind of right in the middle of that. These are called the travel narratives in Luke's gospel as he's leaving Galilee and headed to Jerusalem. But evidently he's not leaving fast enough. Right? Because these Pharisees come and say, listen, Herod, the ruler of Galilee, is after you. You better get out of here. Now, I want to remind you about this guy, Herod. Turn over to Luke chapter 3. We saw Herod earlier when John the Baptist's ministry. Um, and John, of course, is uh, not afraid of anyone. And, uh, and we love him for that and admire him. And he's not even afraid of the rulers of his day. For we read in Luke chapter 3 and verse 19, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, that's by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife. 
So Herod is sleeping with his sister-in-law and John is saying, hey man, that's disgusting. You ought not to do that. That's sinful. But that's not all he's doing. You see this, Luke adds, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. And so John says he's done a lot of other evil things that he doesn't mind pointing out. And, and added to all these evil things, verse 20, he locked John up in prison. And so Herod took John in prison. And, and we know that Herod would eventually kill John. He would behead him. And evidently Jesus is reminding Herod a lot of John. And so now Herod is, is not going to think twice about killing Jesus. And so here come the Pharisees with their uh, very friendly concern over Jesus' well-being. And, and they say, Jesus, listen, Herod's out to get you. you. You ought to get out of here. Now, I just want to remind you of the relationship that Jesus has established with the Pharisees. If you turn back to Luke chapter 11, you see Jesus teaching the Pharisees or talking to the Pharisees. In verse 42, he says to them, But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees. Verse 43. For you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Right? And so Jesus is not really uh, chumming it up with the Pharisees. You guys are a bunch of uh, your dead man's bones rotting in graves and you're contaminating other people. The Pharisees got the message for in verse 53 we read, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So there's great tension there. Of course, Jesus is going to want to relieve that tension, right? We'll just look at the next verse. In the meantime, 12.1, when many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling over one another. He began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Right? In other words, they don't seem like they're too friendly with one another. Jesus and the religious traditionalists. Right? And so excuse me if I'm somewhat suspicious of their motives when they show up to Jesus with this very friendly advice. You better be careful, Jesus. It seems to me that this is an easy way to get rid of Jesus. If we threaten him with Herod, then maybe Jesus will kind of tamp down his ministry. Maybe he'll, he'll go into early retirement. Maybe he'll, he'll leave here or quiet down. It almost seems that Jesus assumes they're working together, for we see in verse 32 of Luke 13, And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. He's referring to Herod. But it seems that what Jesus is implying is that they've, they may have even been sent by Herod. And so he says, hey, when you go back to tell them about our conversation, this is what I want you to tell them. Almost as if the Pharisees are, are his emissaries, which is, which is amazing in light of who Herod was and who the Pharisees were. Would the Pharisees actually work with the political oppressors, the Roman leaders? Well, I, I want you to turn over to Mark. Okay, so uh, we'll go back here to Luke 3, uh, Luke 13, excuse me, but I want you to turn to Mark 3. And, and in Mark 3, we have this story of Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And we know by now, we've seen this enough times, that you're not, according to the Pharisees, you can't heal. You heal any other time, but on, don't, don't heal on God's day. How dare you? And so Jesus heals on God's day, and they get all in a tizzy about it. And, and we've already seen this in Luke's gospel, but in Luke 6. But Mark tells us this interesting um, tidbit of information that Luke omits. In Mark 3, 6, 
Look what it says. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And so here comes the Pharisees. And if we try to modernize this, think Pharisee, think a fundamentalist Muslim. Or to perhaps make it more closer to home, think perhaps fundamentalist Baptist. Okay? Right? Very conservative, right? Tie on Sunday, right? King James only, right? Think, think very strong, traditional, conservative Baptists. And then you have the Herodians. Think secular humanists. Think uh, science professors and Hollywood celebrities, right? And these groups don't often go together. You have the devout Jews and the Roman elite class, and they agree on nothing except their hatred for Jesus, right? It, we, and I want to point this out to you because we have this idea today. I, I hear it frequently. When people say, you know, I don't, I don't love Jesus, I don't worship Jesus, certainly don't obey Jesus, but I admire Jesus. I, I admire Jesus. Well, you need to understand when Jesus actually was here upon this earth, no one admired Jesus. No one. No one who spent any time with Jesus walked away and said, you know what, I don't know about that fellow, but I really admire him. Right? No one did that. No one thought highly of Jesus. In fact, in Mark 3, you, you see he heals this man with a withered hand. Half the people are saying, how wonderful. This is incredible. We can't believe it. And other people are, are saying, how dare you? In Luke's gospel, that same account, he says they are filled with fury. And by the way, this is not the only time this happens. So let me just kind of take us through Luke's gospel uh, just for uh, a little bit to show you the, the reactions to Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Right? And I want to show you that this happens continually. That, that when people respond to Jesus, they either are, are, are drawn to Him, they, they love Him, they think He's incredible and wonderful and amazing, never seen anybody like it, or, or they're, they're fearful of Him, or they hate Him, they're opposed to Him. So Luke 4, Jesus begins His ministry, and He's preaching in Nazareth. Goes home, preaches a sermon, He finishes His sermon, and verse 22, read this, and, and all spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, right? They, they, listen, they, Jesus preached a sermon and, and they've never heard anything like it. They, they, they marveled at a sermon, right? Jaw open astonishment and a man preaching, right? You think it's a good sermon if you could stay awake throughout the whole thing, right? right? They're, they're, they're filled with awe. In fact, they, they are so amazed, they begin to shout, Encore! Encore! Give us more! And so Jesus says, Okay, I'll give you more. And he begins to preach a little bit more. And then we move down six verses. When they, verse 28, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Right? They go from marveling to, to wrath. What, look in Luke chapter 5. Remember the man on the paralyzed bed and, and, and his friends bring him and they tear a hole through the roof and they, they vandalize this poor man's house and drop him right in front of Jesus and they want him to, to heal him, of course, and he will get to it. But before he does it, in verse 20, it says, and when he saw their faith, Luke five twenty, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Well, what did the religious elite think about that? And the scribes and Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's a blasphemer. 
I'll turn to Luke chapter 7. Remember the, the woman of the city who's there at the dinner party of the Pharisees and she's, she's anointing Jesus' feet with her tears and her perfume and she's just weeping there in front of a, a room of religious rabbis there. And, and, and they're all watching this. And we see in Luke 7 verse 39. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. Right? She, he expects Jesus to kick her to the street. Get away from me, woman. He doesn't know she's a sinner. Well, Jesus knows, for we read in verse 48, He said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Amen. Yes, amen. And then those who are at table with Him begin to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? You see, you get two reactions. You get weeping at His feet, or you get anger and fury. In Luke chapter 8, he steps on a boat with his disciples. A storm arises. They're filled with terror. He walks to the bow of the boat. He says to the wind and the waves, Peace, be still. And it obeys him. And what were the disciples thinking? Oh, this is great. I'm really excited about this. No, look look at Luke chapter 8, verse 25. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? Who is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. He gets off the boat. He meets a naked demoniac with a couple thousand demons in him, screaming mad lunatic. He rushes at Jesus. Jesus casts out the demon. And the people of the town show up a little bit later. And they don't find the man naked and screaming, cutting himself. But they find him clothed, sitting at Jesus' feet while Jesus teaches him. And what does the community think? This is incredible. We really admire the work that you're doing in this man's life. No, look what it says in Luke 8 verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country, the garrisons, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They don't know what to do with them. Get away from here. They're afraid of him. Right? They didn't admire Jesus. No one ever admired Jesus. He had two responses: joy, mixed in with some confusion, right? Attraction to him, or opposition. Fear and hatred. And so you have Herod and his minions and the Pharisees, they hate him. You know why? You know why Herod hates Jesus? Why the Herodians hate Jesus? Because he keeps telling people they're sinners and they need to repent. Right? He's, he's like, like John was. Stop sleeping with your brother-in-law's, your brother's wife. He keeps telling people that you have evil in your heart. Right? You go and spread that message in our culture and see how many friends you make. Right? You're a sinner. You need to repent. Our culture hates that message just as the Herodians hated that message, right? Allegra and I are right now in, in, in neck deep in foster care training, right? Where we're completing our 50 hours of um, them teaching us how to rightly parent children, um, okay? And, and we learned this week that whatever you do as a parent, you do not impart values to your children. You simply create a safe and loving environment where they can discover their own values. Right? That's what we're learning. That's what our culture says. Right? Don't tell anybody that something is wrong. How dare you? Don't tell someone they're a sinner that they need to repent. And Jesus was doing that and they hated him for it. And of course the Pharisees loved it when Jesus called people sinners. But he hated that he kept forgiving them. Right? He kept giving grace and mercy. Right? If Jesus was just a religious conservative... The Herodians would have hated him and the Pharisees would have loved him. If he was just an open-minded liberal, the Herodians would have loved him and the Pharisees would have hated him. 
But they all hated him. Right? They hated the bad, the Pharaoh, the Herodians hated the bad news of the gospel. You're a sinner. You, you are under God's wrath. You need God's mercy. They hated that message. And the Pharisees hated the good news of the gospel. God will forgive you through the work of Christ and shower you with grace. He upsets everyone. No one admires him. They hate him. Except who? Well, the only group left are those who know they're sinners. And who need God's grace. Who need His mercy. The only ones left are those of us who say, Oh, sir, can you do anything for a poor sinner? All my life I have been wicked and I'm going to hell and I don't want to go there. I want to go to heaven. Tell me what I can do to get in. And when He does, when He tells you what you can do to get in heaven, when He accomplishes what needs to be done for you to get in heaven, you do not simply admire Him for it. You love Him for it. You surrender everything to Him for it. You give up your life to Him for it. You worship Him. You either hate Him or you love Him. You cannot simply admire Him. In fact, I would suggest it's far better to hate Jesus than to admire Him. Right? Because if you hate Him, you've actually heard Him. People who admire Jesus never really heard Him. They, they have characters in the mind. But they've actually heard his claims and his commands, and people hate them. I think it's Tim Keller who says, if you wrestle with Jesus, you're actually far closer to him than if you admire him from afar. So let him offend you. Let him offend your Herodianism and your Phariseeism. As, as he's clearly offending everyone around him. And, and these Pharisees come to him and say, Herod's out to kill you. You better lay low. You better be quiet. And Jesus says, without hesitation, in verse 32, And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I must finish my course. We call Herod a fox, which is not a compliment. Right? That means he's deceit. A fox was proverbial for cunning deceitful, weak. I didn't think highly of Herod. We'll see this later in Luke's Gospel. I think it is only Luke who shows us Jesus' trial before both Herod and Pilate. And when Jesus is before Herod, he won't utter a single word to him. He'll speak with Pilate. They'll have a conversation. Herod, uh, Jesus has such contempt for him, he won't say anything to him. Right? And, and, and so this fox is out, and Jesus says, rather than running to hide, I'm going to continue my mission. Right? There's work for him to do. He says, I'm going to continue what I've been doing, casting out demons, healing people, teaching. I'm going to do it today, tomorrow, and the third day I'll finish. Now, when we read third day, we get kind of excited, um, but I, I don't think this is a veiled reference to his resurrection, nor is he three days from Jerusalem at this time. This is simply a Semitic expression to say that um, I have more work to do, but I'm not going to work very much longer. I'm going to work today and tomorrow, but by the third day I'll I will be done. In other words, what he's saying is Herod, Herod is no threat to God's mission. I, I, I'm just going to continue the mission which God gave me, and Herod's not going to stop that at all. In fact, he must finish it. You see this in verse 33. This is where we really see the necessity of this mission. Verse 33, he says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way. Well, that's interesting. He, he says to them, I am leaving Galilee, right? Nevertheless, I said, verse 32, I'm not afraid of Herod. I'm going to continue my work. Verse 33, but nevertheless, I am leaving I'm going to leave Galilee, not because I'm afraid of Herod, but why? I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I'm leaving Galilee because I need to get to Jerusalem. In fact, he says here, see that word in verse 33? I must go on my way. He leaves because he has to. 
there is a holy obligation in Jesus to save sinners. I must do it, he says. He must because it's the desire of his heart. That's why he left heaven to come to this earth and took on human flesh because he loves to give grace. He wants to open that narrow door into salvation. The mercy of Christ compelled him. I must do it. He must do it as well because it's the Father's will. The Father has sent him to do that work. Remember when he was 12 years old and, and Mary and Joseph and looking for Jesus for three days and they find him in the temple and, and Mary comes up to him and says uh, to Jesus, your father and I have been looking all over for you. How, why are you treating us this way? And he looks to her and, and he says, in effect, Mom, I, I thought you knew. I must be about my father's business. I must. I must do what my father has sent me to do. And then you flash forward to the very end of his ministry in Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. Jesus refuses the defense of both men and angels, saying, how then will the scripture be fulfilled that it, that it says it must happen this way? I must do it. You see the necessity upon his heart. And I just want you to, to, to feast on that just for a moment, Christian, of the, 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 the courage of Christ. His commitment to his Father. His faithfulness to his Father to do the work to save you. To even give up his own life as we see the mission's end. Secondly, consider the mission's end. It's told us in verse 33 when Jesus says, It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. His end is his death. He is going to perish. Right? So they come to him and say, beware, Herod's going to kill you. In effect, Jesus is saying, of course. Right? That's the mission. I mean, I've been saying this all along. I've been telling you folks over and over again, my mission is to come here and to die, uh, to be rejected by the Pharisees and the scribes, and to be killed, and on the third day to rise again. That's why I've come. That is the mission. In fact, I think he alludes to this in verse 32 when he says there, uh, today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Now I'm preaching from the English Standard Version. Maybe you have a different translation there at the end of verse 32. Maybe your translation say, I finish my goal, I finish my work, I accomplish my purpose are all ways to translate this phrase. There's a bunch of different translations at the end of verse 32. The reason is, is the phrase, my course is not found in the Greek. It literally, he's saying, uh, today and tomorrow and on the third day, I am finished. I'm finished. And we add these phrases to try to make sense of it. But it seems to me that Jesus is anticipating something, isn't he? He's anticipating the cross where he will, after bearing the wrath of God upon himself for sinners such as I and you, he will say what? It is finished. The debt has been paid. When the Lord is nailed to the cross and left to die there, a slow, bloody, painful, God-forsaken death, He will suffer the penalty, not for His sin. This is not a political revolution that just got out of hand. Another failed revolutionary. This is His very purpose, to go to the cross that He might pay the, the, the penalty, the debt for our sin as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God, not for His sin, but for my sin. And He'll bear all of it, and He will say when He is done... It is finished. The debt has been paid. I have accomplished the work in which I have come to do. And then the Bible says, and then he gave up his spirit. They didn't kill him. He just let himself die. 
right? It's finished. What that means is that there is nothing left for you and I to do, and there's no work for us to accomplish in order to get into the kingdom. He's done the work for us. It's all done. I finished it. He says, just come on in. Just trust me. Trust my work. And that's how we're saved, is by bowing our knee to Christ in faith. I went to a a funeral uh, this Friday with my family, and a man, I almost, I almost rushed the pulpit. Um, uh, a man got up and, and said, listen, God has given us His commands. And he said, if we obey His commands, we go to heaven. And it was just a lie from the pit of hell. Who's obeyed God's commands? I can't even obey my own commands. I can't even keep my own standard, let alone a holy and perfect God. Friends, our hope is not in your own work. It is in the work of Christ. It is in His mission, right? His death will not kill the mission. It is the mission. He must die. And therefore, He's not afraid of Herod's threats because dying is the reason He came. Be careful, Jesus. Herod's out to kill you. He says, I know. That's why I'm going to Jerusalem, right? I'm going there not to avoid my death, but it's the place I have to die, as you see that there in in verse 33, doesn't he? He says, For cannot be a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Right? That's where I'm headed. The place where they kill the prophets. It's somewhat sad because Jerusalem is the city where God puts His name. Jerusalem simply means God's peace. It's where His temple is. It's where He's supposed to be worshipped by His people. You think it would be the last place on earth that God's prophet would be killed. And yet that's where He's headed. He's been heading there since Luke 9, 51. We saw it again in Luke 13, verse 22. He keeps inching forward to Jerusalem and this, this great city, the city of God's temple, the city of all the sacrifices, all point to Christ. He's the lamb to be slain. Why must he die in Jerusalem? Because all the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so if Herod wants to kill him, he better get on down to Jerusalem, Right? Because that's the only place where Jesus would die. And this is what is amazing. As Jesus begins to think about his own death in Jerusalem, he begins to think about the people of Jerusalem. So consider thirdly the mission's desire, or maybe better put, the Messiah's desire. As we see it in verse 34, when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. This is a, a prophetic lament. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. History has shown, you read the Old Testament, you'll see that it's the place where prophets are killed is Jerusalem. Nehemiah would say of the citizens of Jerusalem, they're disobedient and rebelled against you and killed your prophets. It's a rebellious people. They kill the ones that God sends to them and they will kill Jesus too. He says that as much in verse 34. You kill the prophets, you stone those whom God sends. And so what does he think of this rebellious and murderous people in Jerusalem? Well, look what he says as we read on in verse 34. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. How often, he says. What? How, often, how often I want to judge you? How often I wanted to uh, exercise my righteous wrath? He says, no, how often I want to gather your children together. The desire of the Lord is to save, not to destroy. And he begins to think about this murderous city and it saddens him. The very people that are going to kill him, Jesus says, I want to save you, right? The the, the people will murder him and he weeps and laments, desiring that they would come to him. Does that that convict your heart? 
How petty are our hearts when we are, grow bitterer over little tiny grievances? When Christ is going to be murdered by these people and his love goes out to them. He says, I'm like a mother hen and Jesus wants to gather her little chicks under the safety of her arms. We want to take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Once again, showing us we're not saved through our effort. We're saved simply by seeking refuge in Christ. And he even says, how often I've wanted to do this. It reminds him of his repeated trips down to Jerusalem. And, and when he goes there, he sees a people whom he loves that he longs to save, even though they are going to, they, they've killed everyone that Jesus has sent, or many of those whom he sent, they're going to kill him. And yet out of compassion, he still says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, won't you come to me? Why won't you come to me? Why wouldn't they? Well, he tells us in the end of verse 34, you would not. They didn't want him. That's why they wouldn't come. Please understand that Jesus is willing to save them, but they are not willing to be saved. The Bible teaches us that it is the will of the unbeliever, not the will of Christ, that sinners are lost. Therefore, my friend, if you find yourself one day shut out, and cast into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is not because it is God's will to send you there. It is because you would not, your will would not bring you to Him. And Jesus says in John 5 and verse 4, You will not come to me that you may have life. Now I know this confuses some of us. Let me just talk to the, just for a moment to my theologically minded friends. Right? Because some of you are going to say, wait a second. I thought scripture teaches that God elects those who will be saved. I thought, he, I thought Scripture teaches he, he predestined those who will be saved. Now, not every Christian agrees on this, but I would affirm I absolutely believe the clear teaching of God's Word is that He chooses, just as He chose Israel, He continues to choose those who will be His. In John 6, verse 44, it says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Ephesians 1, verse 5, it says, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. There are no less than 33 times in the New Testament that says God elects unto salvation. I believe God chooses those who who will be saved. But, just because I think the Scripture infers that God chooses those who will be saved, we cannot therefore jump to the conclusion that God does not desire all people to be saved. Because that is also clearly taught in His Word. Ezekiel 33, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Second Peter, he says, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, yes, I believe God elects those who will be saved. And yes, I believe that God desires all people to be saved. And you say, I don't understand how those go together. And I say, good. Because His ways are not your ways. I don't get it either. But I will submit to it. And to my theologically minded friends, beware of being more systematic than Scripture. And what I mean by that is don't create a system of theology and therefore try to force all Scripture into your system. Rather be biblical before you're systematic. And some of you, that, that may not make sense to you. That's okay. For those of you who make sense, I, I want you, because I used to be like that. Everything had to fit my system. And, you know, one day God just kind of took my system apart and said, start believing the Bible and not your system. Okay? 
And so we see, and I want to affirm, even though, you know, um, I've been accused of the opposite because of my belief in election, I want to affirm that God wants all to be saved. He wants Israel to be saved. I would gather you in. He says, "But, but why won't they? You won't come. You won't come. I think this is amazing in light of what we considered last week. Because last week we, we saw the door was slammed and there's weeping and gnashing teeth and there's the banging on the door and let us in. He says, get out of here. I don't know you. You're evildoers. And it's very hard. Right? And we're left thinking, what, what kind of God is this? What is, what is he doing on the other side of the door? Laughing? Scoffing at them? No. Look what he's saying. I want you to come. He's standing in that narrow door with arms open. Won't you come? He says, oh, how I would save you. Why won't you come to me? And like Jerusalem, sadly, the people are invited over and over to flee to him. They refuse him. They, they will not come. And as we saw, that door will not remain open. In fact, it seems to me that the door was closing for Jerusalem, for Israel, at least for a time. As we consider, lastly, the mission's result. Verse 35, we read, Behold, your house is forsaken. How, the house, uh, he's talking about Jerusalem now, right? And so some people think the house is a specific reference to the temple. I think it's probably more accurately to understand as a general reference to Israel as a nation. That God will vacate Jerusalem. That his house will be empty. He will leave Israel to their own devices. The prophets foretold of this again and again. For instance, Jeremiah 22. If you do not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Chapter 12, he says, I have forsaken my house. The people of Israel will murder the Son of God. And that will be followed by God pouring out wrath upon the city of Jerusalem. Jesus would prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in 68 to 70 A.D., and what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's found in, in all three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's Jesus' probably most extensive prophecy as he speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's warning them even now in this passage. But this is not just about Jerusalem. It is, it, it is for all of us. If we refuse to come to Jesus, we too will be forsaken. And, and not just for this life, but for all eternity. Therefore, we all must repent and trust in Him And if we do, we will know the joy that is found in the rest of verse 35. Look what he says. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In in other words, God's judgment is not the final word. That Jesus gives this promise that the nation of Israel will one day see him and they will quote from Psalm 118. And Jesus saying, one day you will declare, blessed is he. That's referring to Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this has been promised in the book of Romans that though there's a hardening upon the people of Israel, that one day they will, they will turn and receive Christ as their Messiah and be welcome into the church that there might be one people through Christ. The prophet Zechariah tells us in chapter 12 and verse 10, saying, I will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn son. 
Right, so Christ one day will bring Israel back into... The, and I, I wonder if it's happening right now. As you, know, you, you talk to Jewish believers in Christ in the last 40, 50 years, the incoming of Jewish people into the Christian church has been unprecedented since the apostolic era. And so I wonder if God is doing it right now. But listen, this is not just for Israel. Listen, He is returning. You and I will see Him again. Right? And we will be blessed... To bless him. We will be blessed to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will be blessed to see Christ coming and we will identify him as the one who's being sent from the Lord himself. Right? That's his final word. That's how the mission ends. We, he returns, we see him again, and we rejoice in worship. You see, the mission is to come and die for us out of his love for us in order to eternally bless us by reconciling us to God. I find it interesting when Jesus is talking about this that um, he refers to to Herod as the fox and himself as the hen. Um, The fox and the hen. It almost sounds like a Disney movie, doesn't it? Um, We have have a... Many of you know we lived up on the mountain um, just west of here. We We have a fox in our woods and we had 21 chickens. And uh, I say had because we now have eight chickens and a very satisfied fox. Foxes and chickens don't don't often work together, right? And yet here's the hen who longs to save no matter how rebellious we are and does so by what? Letting the fox at him. Let's him take him so that he might give us shelter. He might bring us in. Just as he did some... Years ago to that dying woman, that woman who looked up in that pastor's face as she lay on her deathbed saying, Oh, sir, can you do anything for a poor sinner? All my life I have been a wicked woman and I'm going to hell, but I don't want to go there. I want to go to heaven. Tell me what I can do to get in. As that pastor looked at that woman dying and pleading for help, he realized at that very moment that he himself was not a Christian. He would later explain this meeting and um, saying, I stood there looking down at the poor, anxious face and thought, whatever will I tell her? I have been preaching in my own church on salvation by character, by ethical culture, by reformation, and I thought I can't tell her about salvation by character, for she hasn't any. I can't tell her about salvation by ethical culture, for there's no time for culture. And besides, she most likely wouldn't know what I meant. I can't tell her about salvation by reformation, for she has gone too far to reform. Then it came to me. Why not tell her what your mother used to tell you? She's dying and it can't hurt her even though it does her no good. And so I said, my poor woman, God is very gracious. And the Bible says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Does it say that in the Bible? She said. My, that ought to help me get in. But my sins. Sir, what about my sins? The pastor said it was amazing the way the verses came to me. Verses I had learned years ago and never used. I said, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. All sin? She said. Does it really say that the blood will cleanse me from all sin? That ought to get me in. 
The pastor said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all exception that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Well, she said, if the chief got in, I can come. Pray for me. The pastor said, I knelt down and prayed with that poor woman and got her in. And while I was getting her in, I got myself in too. We two poor sinners, the minister and the dying harlot, were saved together in that little room. Have you come in? Have you walked through that narrow door through faith in Jesus Christ? He died and rose again to open it. It doesn't matter whether you're a harlot or a pastor. It doesn't matter whether you're a Herodian or a Pharisee. The door is open. He invites you to enter. He beckons you to come. Maybe you realize like this pastor that you all your life thought you were okay and God's just revealing to you even now that you have not entered into His kingdom. Scripture tells us we do so by placing our faith in Jesus and bowing our knee to Him as Savior and Lord. The Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's repentance, that's submission, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that's faith receiving what He has done for you on your behalf, you will be saved. That's the Word of God. I invite all of you to come in if you have not entered. That You might even pray to Him even now. God, I believe You have sent Your Son. I believe He has died for my sins. I believe He rose again on the third day. And I submit my life to Him. He is my Lord. I pray for mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner that you would place your faith in Him, that you might have salvation. And for the rest of us, we have before us this meal, do we not, that will remind us of the completed work, right? Remind us that it is finished. So when you hold these elements in your hand, you can let your soul feast upon, no matter how good or bad you are, that it's not dependent upon you, but on the finished work of your Messiah. He's completed your work for you, and you by His grace have been united to Him in faith. Feast on that. Let your soul be nourished on that truth. Let your soul be nourished that you and I one day will be counted among those who say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see that in verse 35? In fact, let's, let, that's going to happen one day. Let's practice that. What do you say before we take this meal? I, we're going to say this together and then we'll pray. You see that at the end of verse 35? Say this with me. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we believe that Christ is the blessed one that has been sent by you. We believe he came to this world to do the work of salvation for us. It is finished. We rejoice in his co- commitment, his courage, his love both for you and for us to come and save sinners. We ask you to help us to be nourished by these truths, even as we are reminded of them through this supper meal. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.